On this week's episode of Cine Chill, we are joined by Andrew Kadikian, who's going to be talking to us about how to have a successful Kickstarter campaign, as well as the state of Hollywood today. I had always had like an interest in films. Uh, my uncle was sort of like a classic film enthusiast, and uh, he had a... Um, box of uh, VHS tapes of just like all kinds of stuff. I remember Air Force One was in there. It was one of the movies that I watched. Like I've seen that movie probably a million times by now. I used to watch that thing all the time. I got like an interest in it in, in cinema at that point, trying to uh, you know imagine what it would be like to make that stuff. And then in high school, I kind of made the decision that that was the career path I wanted to go. And at that point, there was, um, like I said, a, a few friends of mine and I who, who sort of uh, got together and started making short films, um, small stuff. We did like an action movie. We did a, an Indiana Jones fan film. There wasn't an actual film club at my high school. So I like met with the student body president and all that stuff. And I had the, whoever I needed to go through to make one. And we, we had a little film club that we made. We kind of used it to discuss films that were coming out or sort of, you know, try to have our own little artistic discussions about movies. And uh, I guess it sort of just picked up from there. You know, a month after I graduated high school, I jumped right into film school. So I think I first heard about you through when you were doing some Kickstarter projects, or it might have been a little bit before that. And I know quite a few filmmakers, and and you seem to be the one who, who gets the Kickstarter thing. You know how to, how to have a successful campaign. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of filmmakers out there that would like to know, or if you've got any advice on how to have a successful Kickstarter-funded film, because you've done it. How many times have you done it now? I've run or been involved with six, and I believe four of them have been successful. But it's definitely incredibly difficult, and it's a it's a big beast to tackle, because if you do it right, it's as much work as producing the film that you're raising money for. The main things are you got to know what audience you're targeting, um, for my campaign for walk-ons, we were targeting people who liked movies and people who liked playing paintball and kind of putting that together. And also people who were interested in, you know, John Hughes movies, romantic comedies, the kind of, you know, stuff that we were making. And, um, you got to figure out how to target those people. You got to figure out how to structure your page so that it's one appealing to the eye. Um, so someone who was looking at it wants to keep looking at it. Uh, contains all the information that anyone would need while at the same time being succinct and not, you know, rambling on and, or, or dragging on. Um, and, you know, once you get that look down in your story section of your Kickstarter, the, the, the next biggest thing is to structure your rewards. Now, that might be the biggest thing on a successful Kickstarter is how you structure your rewards. And we've learned uh, through bitter tears how, to, how that best works because there are um, – a, a, the majority of people want to spend a certain amount of money to get a certain amount of stuff. And there's, uh, there's definitely a sweet spot in there, like at the 25 to $35 range where you've got to put stuff like a DVD or a t-shirt or something like that. And if you look at a bunch of successful Kickstarters, you'll see like among their reward structures, they've got early on, you know, cool stuff like postcards, you know, digital download of the soundtrack. We've done that a, a bunch of times. And that stuff is free for you to do, uh, yet it's a cool reward for someone to get if they're putting in 5 or $10 or something like that. So you get money on that stuff, and then you you know do stuff with like 
DVDs, T-shirts, Blu-rays, anything you want, coffee mugs, hats, you know, just merchandise around the 25 to 35 to $45 level. And that's where you're kind of sometimes losing money. But you're making that money back on rewards that don't cost you anything to make and send out. And on the later rewards, you're, a lot of times you see people giving stuff like associate producer credits or on my recent one for Athena, we did professionally printed production stills from the set, which are going to be numbered. They're a limited edition collection autographed by the cast and crew. So each person who, who got, I believe there were three backers at that level, they're each going to get a set of five. And, you know, the first backers are going to get number ones of all those sets. So, you know, it's going to be a very you know cool limited edition thing. And there's stuff like that where it might not cost you a lot of money, but it's a cool limited reward that you can put at a higher price. And then, of course, there's executive producer credits and, and you know, goes on and on, special thanks credits. We did a package of all of our older films and merchandise from our older films all together in, in the Athena Kickstarter at a higher level, which is fortuitous because I've got all that stuff. We don't have to pay money to make that stuff again. Uh, so that was a cool thing to put there. But, uh, you know, that's sort of the biggest thing is learn from successful Kickstarters what their reward structure is and li- really study what sells the most on those Kickstarters. Look at their rewards and see what sold the most and what price did was it at and you know, did it sell out? Did they have a limited a limited one, an early bird that sold out? You know, things like that, and and sort of just kind of structure your thing based on what's been successful in the past. And that's kind of what's gotten me through it. Other than other than the fact that you know, just practice, trial and error has helped. But we've spent a lot of time with our Kickstarters, studying the most successful Kickstarter campaigns on Kickstarter, and sort of putting those practices into our um, campaigns and. Uh, I'm happy to say that it's, you know, mostly worked for us. From my side of it, and I think from other people who are backing you, it's more along the lines of, well, I've seen what Andrew can do, and I know how passionate he is about this project. And there's a lot of people who, who, who are like that, and that's a big part of it as well, is your sort of charisma and how you present the project and how you present yourself. Uh, you should have to have a, uh, uh, a video introing your project on your Kickstarter page. And then, you know, you want to keep your audience engaged and your backers engaged and you want to keep those backers sharing it with other people who would be potential backers. And so you want to keep putting stuff up there, featurettes, little videos, testimonials from fellow filmmakers who are, you know, basically saying this guy does good stuff, back him, he's going to, you're going to get something good out of it. It depends on what your project is, how long the campaign is running and, you know, what your audience is. But in the past, I've done things like, once a week, we've put up a video, and it could be like, for for instance, for walk-ons, we did featurettes that um, we did one where, that was about the writing of the movie, and my co-writer and producer Ryan Stockstead went on camera, and he, he and our friend who also co-wrote, co not co-wrote, but he was involved in the writing of a bunch of scripts. It was a crazy screenwriting process for that movie that went we went through a ton of scripts before we got to that one. Aaron Lee Harvey, he helped us out. And uh, so it went, you know, between the two of them and they were talking about how the process was coming from a bunch of scripts and finally landing on walk-ons. And then um, we did one that where Ryan and I talked about our influences that we were putting into walk-on, John Hughes movies and, you know, teen romantic comedies from the 80s, things like that. Then there was one where I talked about my sort of connection to paintball and my my inspiration from playing paintball that the, how that was going into the movie so we put those things up we had video testimonials from friends of ours who were sort of promoting the project we put those up we had um 
We did a thank you video. It was an awesome thing you'd see on Kickstarter very often. That wasn't too fun because, uh, and that, that was after the end of the Kickstarter, so it doesn't really count as something to engage your audience. And there was uh, the, the uh, one of our crew members would read all the names of the people who backed it, and every 10 names they shot me with a paintball. So that wasn't a very, you know, super fun uh, video to shoot. But, you know, that was something we put up afterwards. But, you know, definitely, you know, presenting yourself and, and, and managing your charisma well so that you kind of hook people in and get people to trust you that you're going to make something cool, that they, they're going to want a piece of it. And then keeping that audience engaged throughout your um, campaign, that's definitely another thing that uh, is very important. So you were kind enough to share your latest movie with me. Could you give a, a basic plot without giving any spoilers away what it is? Because I would totally give away a spoiler if I had to explain what that film is about. So it's called The Calliope Box. It's a uh, horror short film that we did for the Los Angeles 48-hour film project uh, earlier this year in 2016. And uh, it's basically, at its basis level, it's about uh, a, a girl who wakes up trapped in a uh, torture box. And we're sort of just experiencing that through her eyes. And the girl who played the main part, she won the award, I believe? Yes. Um, Peyton Messina, a brilliant actress. Um, who we met, in fact, through our previous years competing in the 48. We, we met her. She was on another team. And, uh, yeah, she is, she is absolutely phenomenal in the movie. She won uh, Best Actress in the 48 competition. Later on, they have, a, um, they have a panel of industry professional judges. They have, like, a little award ceremony. And she, uh, she won Best Actress out of everybody who had uh, acted in that. Uh, so I was pretty happy about that. I think the interesting thing as well about yourself is the team that you're assembling. Um, I notice a lot of the well, a lot of names that you work with keep appearing in your films, uh, from producers to writers to you know. Um, how important do you think it is to be you know building a a team uh, for your production, so to speak? Because there's a good consistency of what you're doing and quality and um, what you put that down to. When you find someone good, you you definitely want to keep working with them because that only helps both of you. And I, I'm lucky enough to have been sort of thrown into a bunch of projects over the past five or six years where I've met, you know, fantastic people and and who apparently like working with me as much as I like working with them because I keep they keep coming back when I ask them. And uh, yeah, our, our 48 team, I, th- I believe this year was the, geez, it was like the seventh time that I had done it. Uh, the eighth or ninth time for some other people on the team uh, who, who who have seniority over me. Um, and sort of over that time, we've just kind of, we've got these regulars that every time we compete in the competition, the people who run the competition and the people who, uh, the other teams who are regulars, they all recognize our actors and, and a lot of the names in the credits because uh, they keep coming back. You know, it's just, yeah, like I said, you find good people to work with and you just keep bringing them back and, uh, it, it only is good for everybody involved because everybody just keeps getting better. I, I'm sure there's people out there who are listening to this wondering, you know, I'm 16 years old. What's the best way for me to to become a filmmaker? And, and it seems so complicated and it seems like I'm going to have to meet so many people. And there's so it's really expensive to get into. I mean, what would you say to people who are looking to dive in and, and get involved? Um, I think the biggest piece of advice that you can get as a young filmmaker and the truest piece of advice is to just go out there and start making movies because that's the best way to learn. Go out there and start doing stuff. And we live in a 
fantastic digital age where you can, you know, you can get your hands on, um, if not, you know, good medium grade cameras, like the stuff that I often use for like two, three grand that shoots really good 1080p footage, you can get, you know, crop frame sensors, you know, on cameras like the T2i, the Canon T2i, for instance, um, and things like that for less than a grand. And, and go out and shoot stuff where you don't need film, you don't need tape. You're literally your medium is a completely renewable resource. You can um, get all kinds of free editing software on any kind of computer you're using, and and then put that stuff up on YouTube for you know potentially millions of people to see. So you've got the means to create, you've got the means to edit, and you've got the means to distribute your film right there. For very little money, and this is the only time in the history of cinema where that has been possible. And so, my biggest advice, I think, would be to just go out there and start making movies. And of course, there are places you need to learn from. Um, you need to learn from the established sort of uh, masters and the established curriculum that's out there, of course. But there's nothing that beats experience. Um, my my biggest thing would be. Uh, when you're out there making stuff, make those mistakes and learn from them and, you know, just work through it and kind of find your own solutions. And when you get to the point where you're thinking about, oh, do I do I learn from experience or do I go to film school? Do I you know, the, all of those are valid routes. There's been a lot of debate, of course, between whether film school is necessary or not. I went to film school. I thought it was an invaluable experience. Uh, because, yes, you can learn that stuff elsewhere, but there's nowhere else you can go and be part of a community and make those connections with people who you will work with for years to come, maybe your entire careers. I'm working with people who I met in film school um, that I'm, I can foresee myself working with for a very, very long time. Uh, and it's also very, very valuable to be there learning from people who uh, who are, if not masters of the craft, they've, they've gone through the steps and they can give you their experience, namely the professors at film school. Um, then there's also tons and tons of incredible literature on filmmaking that are written by those masters who teach at film schools and things like that. So there's a wealth of knowledge out there for you to get if you just want to look and kind of study. And there's a whole array of capability that you have to go out and just make the stuff that at any age, really, there's no reason if you want to do this to not be out there doing it and honing your craft from an early age. That's sort of what I did. Uh, might not be as early as some people, but I started when I wanted to start and that's kind of gotten me to where I am now. What comes across as well with, with your films is the, the presentation. You like, you clearly want to be putting your audience into, they're not watching a video on YouTube, they're watching a movie, even though it's you know on YouTube, from the, and I spoke to uh, another filmmaker last week, uh, a guy called Harry Sheriff, who's a phenomenal uh, talent, uh, he's in the process of making 12 films this year, he's doing one a month, and they're all like, yeah, and they're all really, really good, um, and his films, they just literally dive straight in, um, and one thing I said to him, um, a lot of filmmakers will throw up flashy titles and credits and all this because it's like, well, this is what a movie feels like. But I, I think you do that, but you do it, like, and this will contradict myself, you do it well. Like I don't cringe when I see it because you are literally putting that person, right, you're, you're in for this film now. You know, I want your attention. 
um, were as opposed to I think other filmmakers who kind of do that. It's more like, well, this is how you know Man of Steel started, or this is how the latest movie Man of Steel is such a terrible example, but this is how like the latest movie started that I saw at the cinema. Yeah, it's definitely it's sort of been my dilemma. Um, with YouTube since I've been doing YouTube and um, I've been on YouTube since YouTube was a thing. I started with uh, very good friends of mine like Clinton Jones, who's a popular YouTuber now. Um, his, his YouTube handle is Punisher. He works with uh, 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 Freddie Wong at Rocket Jump and right now. And, you know, it's um, we, we started together. It's been like sort of my dilemma that whole time where I don't want to make YouTube videos. I want to make films. I want to make cinema. And I want the audience of YouTube to connect to that. Now, of course, there's, it's, it's difficult because there's places like Rocket Jump and Corridor Digital, um, people who I've, who I've met and worked with, and they're awesome people. I love them. But, I mean, uh, besides certain big projects that they do, special stuff, their main bread and butter on YouTube, I, I wouldn't call it filmmaking. I'd call it YouTube videos, which is fine if you want to do that. But I've wanted to make films on YouTube and still get that audience, hopefully so one day as big as someone like Quarter Digital or, or, or Rocket Jump. When someone puts like a ton of titles or like this big opening for no other reason than they saw that in a movie and you know that's what a movie looks like, it, it gets you pulls you out right away. You get annoyed at it and you, you don't want to watch it. <clears throat> But when you do stuff that – it starts with good writing and good storytelling. That's the basis of all filmmaking is storytelling. You've got to know how to tell a story, and that's the hardest part to learn. Like I was saying before, you can go out and you could learn the craft, but storytelling takes, first of all, talent. And second, you have to hone that. You have to hone that talent. So you have to figure out how a story is told, and it's not too hard. Stories have been told the same way for 3,000 years since the, they carved the stone wheel. Um, stories have been told the same way. You've got to just learn how to tell a story and you've got to hone the way you tell that story uniquely. Then at that point, everything else just falls into place. If the story calls for a title sequence, if the story calls for a, a slow opening and you know how to tell that story, you do it and that pulls people in right away. And then it's there for a reason and it makes a lot of sense to be there. So the guy you collaborate with uh, who does the music to your films, because I also think the music does stand out have you used the same guy for everything? My main guy is my good friend Nestor Estrada. He is a phenomenal composer. I I, I love working with him. I, I worked with him the first time in 2011, and since then I've just been sort of keep going back to him. A lot of times I'll he'll he'll not be available or something, especially for things as like locked in as a 48-hour film project, for instance, where it has to be on this day and this weekend. Um, he might not be available, so I go to other people at his, you know, sort of circle of, of composers. For instance, uh, Daniel, geez, I don't know how to say his last name. Last name. Sorry, Daniel. Sierra uh, I'm sorry, Daniel. I don't know how to say your last name. Um, when I don't go to Nestor, I go to Daniel. Uh, you know, I started with them in sort of just like a favor for a favor capacity, which, you know, is a lot of people's biggest hurdle when trying to hire people like composers that you don't have the money to pay them. At the time when we started, we sort of we were of course trading favors. There there wasn't money involved, uh, but it sort of forged this sort of relationship where they worked on my projects because they wanted to work on cool projects and they wanted to have good material for their portfolios. And uh, I worked with them because of course I wanted to have cool music and good music for my movies, and that sort of helped. We helped each other out 
to the point where now we can start, you know, paying for services and, and working together at a professional basis. But if you find the good person that you want to work with and you don't have the money to pay them, some people might be out of your league. Sometimes they might legitimately, you know, not have time to take on work that's not paid. But, you know, when you find somebody that is good, you just, you know, talk to them, give them the, the rundown, tell them genuinely who you are, what you're about, what your project is about, what you want the project to do. And be honest and straightforward with them. And uh, if they like your project and they have the time to do it, they will take your project on. And you might find yourself years later working with the same people professionally. And that's sort of where I've come to. And I'm very, very happy with the the whole group of composers that I ended up working with uh, for the past few years. A big studio has just got in touch and they've said, look, uh, we like what you've done. We'll give you 200 million. You can have any genre. You can have any cast and any composer, who would those people be? 200 million, wow, that, wouldn't that be nice for your first feature film? The kind of filmmaker I am, I, I, I have all the love in the world for artistic, deep message movies and avant-garde work. I have all the love in the world for that stuff, but that's not me. That's not the kind of stuff I want to make. I want to make entertainment, like pure good entertainment, good storytelling, engaging cinema that is that just also happens to be action movies adventure movies something fun maybe maybe you'd call it the cheesy popcorn flick but the cheesy popcorn flick of the 90s not of the 2010s so like that's the kind of stuff i want to make so if i were given the money to to, you know make an original good um i would hope it would be good an original uh studio film today uh i think what i would do is make a adventure movie sort of in the in the vein of Indiana Jones, something like that. I've always wanted to make a uh, sort of modern day treasure hunter story uh, where like we have a a likable, fun, charismatic character who goes out in the world and we see the world. We see so many different countries. It's a big sweeping story, just like Indiana Jones, where we go to a bunch of different places. We're in like ancient tombs. We're running away from booby traps. We're, you know, fighting pirates and bad guys and, um, and it's this big adventure movie. There's a love interest, like it's just like the classic adventure movie. I'd love to make something like that. So that's probably what I would do. Would assume I'd be writing and directing it myself. I would love to have you know, my dream composer for something like that. It's going to sound a lot like Indiana Jones going forward, but I'm <laughs> going to say I'm going to say John Williams. John Williams would be my my dream composer for that. So now it's sounding a lot like Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'd I'd love to make a. a like this big adventure movie, people like Indian, uh, people like, I'm sorry, people like um, uh, John Williams working on it for the score. Um, cinematography like, oh God, this is just going all the way to Spielberg. Cinematography like people like Vilmos Sigmund, who did the cinematography for uh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Spielberg, and in fact won the Oscar for cinematography for that film. Um, and then I, I guess the, 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 sort of feeling that is being portrayed by all this stuff as I'm saying that I kind of want to go back to the eighties and nineties, you know, like the eighties movies that had that sort of cinematic luster and, you know, stuff like that Spielberg made, uh, in that time, that's the kind of stuff that I would want to make. And that's sort of the thing I would make. Um, as far as actors, I would love to work with sort of the sort of underdog actors that haven't been, you know, at the huge forefront. Nathan Fillion is one that I would love to work with. Um, people like that, that, you know, we could make like just a really cool, fun adventure movie that's original. Like if, 
if movies like that were being made in Hollywood, I would be a happy camper. I don't think I would quit and just watch them. I'd still want to make them, but <laughs> I would be happy if, if that was, those were the kind of things I'd be able to go see in the theater. I remember when the superhero stuff started, and I think it was with possibly the uh, the first Spider-Man with, uh, is it Tobey Maguire who was in it? And it was so exciting because superhero movies before then had kind of just faded out, and it was like so refreshing and then spider-man 2 came and that was cool and then all of a sudden you know we had i i I put a lot of this blame down to the the marvel model which i've spoken about before and that's where they've gone hey let's um you know we can invent this world and basically like the way i feel about the marvel model is it's one movie yeah and that yeah, to me one big is universe. exactly and it's obviously selling very well because box office doesn't lie um yeah i do a, a, like a top 10 films every year this year i can only think of maybe two films this year that i thought wow what a really you know good like strong piece of work that i saw at the cinema even one of my favorite films of this year um 10 cloverfield lane you know, they they couldn't even release that without having it couched in something that pre-existed because they knew that if they just released it and it was a spec script called The Seller, if they just released it as in its original form, it wouldn't have put, you know, bums on seats or asses on seats. Well, to, to be fair, I think it would have, but they wouldn't have released it. They wouldn't have bought it. They wouldn't have made it if, if it was that. I think that's where the problem lies is that the executives, the the studios, Hollywood is not investing in that original content um, because uh, it is a guaranteed seller if it connects to something. It's 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 already got a fan base that they can connect to. So you know that sort of it goes back to what you're saying, but that I think is why stuff like that gets made as opposed to if that movie was an original thing. Uh, I don't think it would have gotten made in the first place. I thought it was a really strong piece of work, and I, I am excited about that di- that director, Dan Trachtenberg. I think he's a really exciting prospect. The same with Gareth Edwards, but I also find with these filmmakers who do something that's interesting, I mean, best example is Gareth Edwards. He did that Monsters, which I thought was a a really strong piece of work and the next thing oh you're making godzilla and it's like mm-hmm. you know can't even be making something completely original and then the same for colin trevorrow he did safety not guaranteed his first and only film and that film blew me away and then the next fantastic. thing and then he got hired to make uh, um one of the worst movies of the past 10 years then he had to make Jurassic World and you know but who's going to say no to Steven Spielberg I mean if you had that phone call from Steven Spielberg and he's like Andrew I really like your movies Um, I feel like you have the whole sense of wonder and everything I'd say yes in a heartbeat will you do Jurassic World but here's the kick here's the kicker it's already written um, and you can't change anything in it you'd be like yes yes, that's exactly the situation yeah and, and I would totally say yes too but yeah, that is exactly the situation that Colin Trevor was in. I don't blame him uh, for a second for that movie. I think the likes of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, they should be doing what the opportunities that they had when they were younger were a studio. Because let's face it, they didn't fund their own film studios. Well, like, here's some money. You do it. Yeah. And no, I think... it, it, but it was a different time. 
it was a very different time in Hollywood then. It's a different area era that those filmmakers came about in. Uh, it it Hollywood was like the studio system had collapsed. Mm. Like the, the the studio system of the fifties and the sixties had been this sort of thing where you churned out movies with the same stars directed by the same people because the studio owned all of them. And it was just on the same sets in the same sound stages with the same people over and over and over again. Hollywood needed new blood and all the, all the studio execs knew that they needed new blood. They needed to bring in new filmmakers to make new kinds of movies that were going to change how film viewing was and, you know, that's where the blockbuster was born out of with Jaws. And that's where, you know, all that that sort of um, new kind of style of movies started then and have sort of carried on to now have been. But I think going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that's happening again. I think at some point soon it's going to be a point where the, the, the system is going to, if not collapse, just wear itself out. Hmm. And then we will again need new blood. And who's going to be around? Hopefully us, you know, we're going to be at the time they're they're at the age that Spielberg and Lucas and and um, Landis and and Coppola and everyone was and and be at the point where like okay we need something new let's turn to these guys let's take a chance and give them money but um, call me call me cynical but I don't know if 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 we're going to see that time because the studio execs think differently now than they did in the uh, in the 70s when that change happened. Steven Spielberg, he has a big say in what's happening. If he's as clever as we are led to believe, which I think he is, he has the power to say to... I mean, I do think it is kind of happening, the fact that he, they are looking at younger filmmakers. The problem is that they're still trying to get younger filmmakers to make uh, franchise movies where... But then again, like you're saying, though, um, just, to, just to kind of comment on what you're saying, Spielberg is also old. He's also nearing the end of his career. He, if there is an end to his career, um, if I was him, I wouldn't stop. I, I would. I'm going to make movies until the day I die. But, um, like he, he had his time. He did his thing. He's made his money, and he's he's just you know he's just doing his routine now. Whether or not he has an interest in the future of Hollywood and and making sure that it ends up being a good future versus a bad future that we won't know. No one knows unless they ask him, but um, you know, he's past the point where I think he cares about doing that. I think he's just doing his own thing. He's doing his career. He's, he's living it out. And, um, and you also got to understand that, you know, he came as, as powerful as he is and as influential as he is, it's not he's not going to change anyone's mind the people who are going to change the minds of the studios are us the people who are buying tickets and sure. paying at the box office if we continue to throw gobs of money at the tentpole franchise movies the the marvel movies the dc movies the star wars movies they're going to keep making that stuff and the only thing that's going to change that is if that stuff stops making money and the sort of indie uh, original lower level stuff that stuff starts making more money then they're going to see that's the stuff that's making money let's make that hmm. there's going to have to be a change or there's going to or, or something's going to have to rise out of the ashes once everything else blows up it's going to be one of the two things where can people find your work and what have you got coming out next next um is athena it's a uh, sci-fi action short film uh it's coming to my youtube channel which is um 
youtube.com slash C slash rogue division or youtube.com slash the rogue division. Um, you can find all of my work there. Um, most of it that's been released anyway. I've got a couple of things that are currently going to festivals like the Calliope box, which we mentioned earlier, that will be up there eventually, but not yet. Um, you can also find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram at, uh, the great Kadik K A D I K. Um, and I, I believe, uh, I believe you can find everything on me at, uh, at all of those places. Andrew, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It's always appreciated. I uh, enjoyed being here. Thank you. Mm-hmm.